Welcome everyone, so glad you're here this morning. If you're watching online, I just want to draw attention to some words from God's Word as we begin our time in the Word together. I know for some people it's a tough week. It's a hard week and and uh, maybe the noise of everything you hear is just stifled and you know suffocated your own heart and I want you to know this is a, a free place to kind of come and and to, to just get a breath away from all that. And that's what I'm here to do as your pastor is to say there is a bigger story that we're part of. And it transcends this narrative that we find ourselves trapped in. And it's trapped in. We're not trapped in it, but it feels like it sometimes. But I, I believe, you know, just to remind you that God is doing something bigger than what you always see on, on the outside. And so uh, when we come here, we, we just recognize that there, there is all these subplots around us, but... God has a bigger plan that he is accomplishing in and through the church right now, and we want to keep that in mind. But listen to what Isaiah 44 says. This is what the Lord, Israel's king, says, their protector, the Lord who commands armies, or Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. There is no God but me. Who is like me? Let him make his claim. Let him announce it and explain it to me. Since I established an ancient people, let them announce future events. Don't panic. Don't be afraid. Did I not tell you beforehand to decree it? You are my witnesses. Is there any God but me? There is no other sheltering rock I know of none. And he talks about idols and how these people were going to other places to try to find help. And he just talks about the foolishness of building idols. He's like, you know, you, you, you forge this metal, you cut this wood, and then you take those shavings and you throw them in the furnace. And he's like, and then you're worshiping this thing. He's like, really, like, think about what you're doing. And the end of Isaiah 44, he says, this is what the Lord, your protector, says. The one who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who made everything, who alone stretched out the sky, who fashioned the earth all by myself, who frustrates the omens of the empty talkers. And, hum and humiliates the omen readers, who overturns the counsel of the wise men and makes their advice seem foolish, who fulfills the oracles of his prophetic servants and brings to pass announcements of his messengers, who says about Jerusalem, she will be inhabited, and about the towns of Judah, they will be rebuilt, her ruins I will raise up, who says to the deep sea, be dry, and I will dry up your sea currents, who commissions Cyrus, the one I appointed as shepherd to carry out all my wishes, and to decree and to, concerning Jerusalem, she will be rebuilt. And concerning the temple, it will be reconstructed. Years before the book of Haggai, Isaiah prophesies that there will be a time when Israel is cleared out, but then it will be reestablished, repopulated, and rebuilt. God's plan prevails no matter what else goes on around us. And at times it feels like you are on the losing side, but, but God's word encourages us to, to reset our priorities and to reset our passion and to stay focused on him throughout the journey that we're on. And so as we come to God's word, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And if you have heavy hearts this morning, if you've had to deal with some of the, the ugliness of what's been going on in our world, and it's, I'm, I'm encouraging you to bring that to the Lord. He, he wants to hear your pain, he wants to hear your frustration. He's, he's aware of the situations you're in. I've had several people talk to me this week, and I, I just know that there, there's a lot of stuff going out there. There's a lot of kind of bullying rhetoric out there, and it's just, and it's, just it's, you know, and, and, and it comes into the church, and, and we're not letting that come in here because the Holy Spirit unites the church. 
If there's a message that brings disunity, it's not from God. It's from, it's from outside of God. It's from the enemy. It's from the evil one. And we just, we, we speak against that in the name of Jesus. That is not welcome in this building. This is God's holy dwelling place. We are his people. And we gather today around Jesus Christ, who loves all people, regardless of their opinion on the environment, on health, on this and that. Christ invites everyone into a relationship with him. And that's what we celebrate here at New Life Community Church. And so join me as we pray and seek God's will and favor upon this body and as we come to his word together. Lord, you are the king of the universe. The creator of the ends of the earth, you made us and everything in this world for your glory. We are your people created in your image. And Lord, I confess on behalf of my nation that we have turned away from you. Our leaders have propagated truths that are contrary to your word. Forgive us, O Lord. Forgive our premiers for attacking pastors and churches unfairly over this last two years. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive Christians for biting and devouring each other. Forgive us for the horrible things we put on Facebook. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us where we've lived in fear and not walked in faith. Forgive us, O Lord. And renew in our minds a vision of your majesty and your glory. You are the beginning and the end. The sovereign master majestically enthroned in heaven itself. And we are your servants. We are your people. We are your family. And so draw us to that truth this morning. And as we celebrate communion at the end of this service, Lord, unite us by your Holy Spirit around Christ our Savior that you might be glorified in and through this body. And so as we come to the preaching of your word, bless it, we pray in Jesus' name. brings us to Haggai, if you have your Bibles, or you can follow along. It's going to be on the screen here. Haggai is this book written 520 BC. It's a book, if you were here last week, you, I'm giving you a review, but if you weren't, let me just bring you into the story, right? God has told his people that you need to be faithful to me, follow my word, and the book of the Bible, the Bible is a story of God's people failing again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and God keeps resetting throughout the Bible. Because he wants to orient people into a relationship with him. So he keeps doing a reset, reset, reset. He tells, tells the people, follow me, obey my word. And they're like, okay, okay. And then he sends these prophets to warn people, look, if you don't obey me, I, I'm going to take you out of the land. And they're like, oh, that's never going to happen. And 722, the Assyrians come in, take away the northern part of Israel. All those people disappear. The southern part and Jerusalem, which housed the temple of God, the place of worship. It was the places where the kings of Israel sat on the throne. And, and, and they're like, oh, God will never, ever allow anything to happen to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. But God's like, look, if you don't smarten up and, and get right with me, if you don't take a good, hard look at your life and align it with my truth, I'm going to take you out of the land, and then after 70 years, I'll bring you back in. 586 B.C., the Babylonians push down the walls of Jerusalem, just destroy it. They come into the temple. They take everything of value out, and then they push the building down. They burn up what can be burnt up. It's left a pile of rubble. And all the people are dragged out of, out of Jerusalem and out of Judea, and they're sent to Babylon. They're, they're you know, placed in a little commune up there. There you go. Live. And then their prophets are speaking this whole time. The question is, can God minister to his people when they're not in Jerusalem, when they don't have the temple? And he does minister to them. He does speak to them. He speaks to the prophet Ezekiel on the, on the banks of the river Kibar there in Babylon. But, but he's like, I'm not done with you yet. Persia takes over from Babylon. And Cyrus, which we just read about in the book of Isaiah, 
says, you know what? The Jews can return to their land. And not only that, they can rebuild their temple. And not only that, I'm going to provide the resources for them to build their temple. And, and so a bunch of Jews in Persia now, it used to be Babylon, moved down to, to Jerusalem to, to rebuild the temple, to recapture the glory that was lost. But what they find is this pile of rubble. It's just a, just a pile of, like, like, a, like a gravel pit. Like a quarry, it's just a mess. There's no walls, there's no temple, there's, it's just ashes and wild animals and there's some, you know, ragtag people living in the area. It's got a new political system, new power structures. The, the Israelites left behind have, 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 you know, intermarried with the foreign people, so there's not really a pure faith anymore. And, and God's like, I want to restore my people. I want to restore the, the faith of Israel, the, the worship of the one true God in Jerusalem. So go back there, rebuild the temple. They start building the temple. They start building the temple. And suddenly, they, they're getting pressure from the outside, right? Anytime you do God's will, you do the right thing. Uh, you can expect pressure, opposition, antagonism. Anytime you put your flag in the, you know, point, you know, in the sand and be like, I am going to serve the Lord. I mean, just you're, you're, you're asking to get fired upon. And that's what happens. There's this pressure, there's pressure, pressure. They're living in fear. And finally, they're like, you know what? Let's just focus on our own houses for now, and we'll get to the temple later. It's not time. It's not time. And so they, they leave it. Every day they walk by that pile of rubble, ignoring what God sent them there to do. And finally God sends the prophet Haggai, probably 18 years later. By this point, their houses look nice. God's house is still a pile of rubble. And into this context, God sends Haggai and says, what are you guys doing? I sent you there to reset, and you're not resetting. You're just doing your own thing. He's like, this starts with your priorities. And he, three times, or twice in this first part of chapter 1, he says, consider what you're doing. Take a good, hard look at your life. Consider what you have been doing. Consider what you should be doing. And I said last week, consider what God is doing. That's part of the reset agenda that God has in the world. To think about what we have the priorities in our life and consider what God would like our priorities to be and then say, God, how would you reprioritize my life, Lord? We end in verse 11 and the, and the people have been, heard this message. Basically, your life is not working out because you haven't included God in your formula. You plant fields and they don't produce a harvest. You, you know, you, you have all these lambs and, and then they die in, in childbirth. And, and, and the figs are not filling out on the trees and there's all this stuff happening. And God's saying, I'm doing this so that I can, you get your attention and you will return to me. Reset your priorities. And the question is, will they? Will they actually do something about it? Are they just going to ignore God and pretend that, that his message isn't there? Are they just going to keep doing the same things, trying to find different results, and, and it's failing? And here's, here's the reality. When you accept the narrative of the world and, and, and the, you know, the, the alternative philosophies of life that exclude God, what you'll find is you'll keep trying, you'll keep trying, you'll keep trying, you'll keep trying. It doesn't work. I read this week about this guy in India. He went to India because he was going to you know, find enlightenment. He's at the Ganges. He throws his Canadian passport into the river. He lives this, you know, ascetic life, you know, like dressed like a Brahmin, and he's, he's going to find higher consciousness. And, and basically what they said, you know, as the city has developed and grown, it's no longer quite the spiritual place it was when he got there. And, and what is he? He's a grouchy old man living in India. 
with no house, no passport, no life, no life, no income, depending on other expats to feed him and place to shower and stuff. But here he thought he would reach this higher plane. And he's just a grouchy old man. Why? Because it doesn't satisfy. You take God out of the picture, and you just keep turn, turning around and around. These people are trying to live life the way everyone else is living it. And God's like, you're walking by the pile of rubble. That's what needs to happen right here. Build the temple. So in verse 12, this is what happens. It says in verse 12 of chapter 1, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, along with the whole remnant of the people, obeyed the Lord their God. They responded favorably to the message of the prophet Haggai, who spoke just as the Lord their God had instructed him. And the people began to respect the Lord. Some significant happens here. There's this response. The word obeyed literally means they listened to, or in the old translation says, they took heed. It's, it's to listen with, with the intent to obey and to act upon what you're hearing, right? It's not like when, ladies, you speak to your husband when he's watching football, right? It's like, hey, honey, would you do this for me? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, he, you know, he doesn't do it because he's still watching football. He's not listening. That's not what he's talking about here. They're listening with the idea of obeying. Now, you women that are smart are like, hey, honey, do you mind if I spend 500 bucks at the store this, you know, today? And like, oh, yeah, 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 whatever, you know. Wait till the end of the, you know, fourth quarter when it's really tight and he's not listening. You know, ask whatever you want. He'll give it to you, you know. But listen with the intent of obeying, taking heed. It's a work of the heart. It means perception, will, and obedience. One commentator said, the people listened with attention, interest, and submission. It's not just, oh, I hear you. It's not like, you know, sometimes when you come in and listen to the pastors preach and you leave and, and, you, and you just, your life goes on like nothing ever happened. God actually wants to speak to your life. He wants you to hear him speaking. And I hope I'm out of the way and so that you, God can speak to your hearts. Because this is what happened. Haggai delivers this message. It's God's message, not Haggai's. And suddenly people are like, wow, God is speaking to us. We need to do something about it. We, we can't keep doing this. We can't keep walking by that pile. God actually wants our attention. He has a plan for us, and we, we've been ignoring his plan. We need to get our lives right with him. We need to reset our priorities. And as we'll find out, we're going to reset our passion. It says they responded favorably to the message of the prophet Haggai. Notice they're called the remnant. Before, they were called these people, those people. Now they're the remnant. You know, if you're a remnant, if you, if you go to the fabric store, at the end of the roll, you, you get a little chunk of fabric. They call it the remnant, right? It's the last yard, last half a yard, last couple of yards, whatever, right? There, it, it represents what once was a whole bolt or a whole, you know, roll of fabric. Now all you got is just the end. It's in the bargain bin. It's cheaper. It's like, well, you might be able to make something small out of it, you know? And he's like, like here's a piece which represents the whole but has potential. The remnant. God always keeps a remnant. Always. Churches can compromise, but there will be a remnant that will kind of hold on to the truth and maybe form something new out of that. They'll, you know, uh, the people of Israel, I mean, a, a whole bunch of them fell away, but God kept that small group that kind of were there they are back in, in Jerusalem trying to rebuild. And God's speaking to the remnant, and, and they respond in obedience. They're, they're like, wow, we need, we need, God is speaking. We need to listen to him. When you don't follow through with what God's word says, you're not disobeying me. You're, you're just rejecting God. 
when you're reading your Bible in the morning and you really get convicted by something you're reading, you're like, oh, well, let's close that. Don't forget that. I mean, you're not just rejecting the book. You're rejecting the God who's speaking to you. But here are these people. They respond. They're like, no, no. Something's not right. We need, we need to fix this. We need to change this. We need to respond in, in obedience. In, in Genesis chapter 22, God asked Abraham to go and sacrifice his son, Isaac, on the mountain. A weird request, but he's testing Abraham's faith. Do you trust me, Abraham? Do you really trust me? So he takes his son, carries him up to the mountain, ties him up. He's probably a young man, like, like you know, like my, one of my sons. And I'd have a hard time tying my guys up now. They're getting too big, too tough for that. But here, Isaac takes it. He ties him up, puts him on the rock, gets the knife out. Okay. And God's like, stop. The angel of the Lord is speaking to Abraham. Goes, stop. I, now I know that you fear me. And he says in verse 18, because you have obeyed me, all the nations of the earth will pronounce blessings on one another using the name of your descendants. You, you obeyed me. You, you took heed to me. You listened to me because you did this. Uh, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. And, and here's the same word. You, they obeyed the Lord. Notice what it says at the end of that verse. It says the people began to respect the Lord. They began to fear him. It's literally the literal translation. They began to respect him. There is this acknowledgement that God actually is speaking to me and, and he has the right to speak to me and, and he has the authority to speak to me and I need to respond to that authority. The fear of the Lord requires that we remove ourselves as a center of authority in our self-made universe, says Coptic. It has both rational and non-rational aspects. It, it's, it, it's obeying God's word and his commands, but it's also this sense of awe and reverence and, and wonder at, at his greatness and the fact that he actually cares about us as puny little individuals. They begin to respect the Lord, their God. Here we thought he didn't care about our lives, and now he's speaking to us. He actually does care. Wow, what a great God he is. In the book of Deuteronomy, the love of the Lord and the fear of the Lord are used interchangeably and synonymously. It represents a relationship and a relational connection and restoration with God. According to the Boda and the New International Commentary, he says this response represents a massive step of faith. They obey, they recognize God is speaking, and they fear him. They respect his name. This is the first step, okay, in the reset agenda. To acknowledge God speaking, to to, re to recognize it, to listen with an attentive obedience, and, and, and then to just to show that respect for who God is. And look what happens in verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's word to the people. I am with you, says the Lord. Amazing words. Some of the best words in the Bible. I am with you. Jacob, in Genesis 28, is, has just taken the birthright from his brother Esau. Esau's mad, going to kill him. His, his mom sends him away. He's running away. He's leaving the land that God promised to, to him and to his ancestors. He is the one, of, the, the son of the promise. He's running away. He's, he's not sure. He's afraid. He's not sure what's going to happen. He lies down in Bethel, and there he has this vision of this, like, staircase into heaven, kind of like an escalator. Angels are moving up and down. It's like this this portal into, into, the, into the eternal spiritual realm, and he has this vision, this dream, and, and in the midst of that, God speaks to him and says, I am with you, Jacob. Jacob, the schemer, the, <laughs> the man who is not exactly a paragon of faith, but God says, I'm with you. Why? Because God's got a plan. 
Moses is standing in front of a burning bush in the wilderness, barefoot, and, and God, Yahweh, is speaking to him, and, and he's like, you're going to leave this people out of land. And Moses is like, me? Are you kidding me? You don't have anyone else to choose? And God says, surely I will be with you. Later on in the book of Judges, God's people have become idolatrous and God turns them over to the pillaging nations around them. The, the Midianites, you know, ride their camels in every harvest and, and just, you know, raise the land, take all the grain out and, and leave it a desolation. And, 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 you know, and the Israelites are, are putting up with this. And there's Gideon hiding in a wine press. It's on the top of a hill where you kind of can't see him. He's down there threshing some wheat, trying to get enough grain to feed his family. And, and, the, and the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, the Lord is with you, courageous warrior. And he's, there he gets hiding. <laughs> the Lord's with you. What, me? You're talking to me? God's got a plan, and he's going to get, complete his plan through imperfect people like Jacob, Moses, Gideon, Jeremiah the prophet. God commissions him, Jeremiah chapter 1, and he says, Do not be afraid of those to whom I send you, for I will be with you to protect you, says the Lord. And so Jeremiah is encouraged, right? So he brings his message to the people. Here's God's message, and what do the people do? They hate him. They're ready to stone him. They're ready to lynch him. He has to hide. At one point, they capture him, throw him in an old well. It's muddy and dank and sinky and full of salamanders and who knows what down there. And, and there he is. Do you think Jeremiah felt like God was with him in that moment? Maybe he felt like some of you do in your darkest and deepest moments where you just wonder, where is he? Where is he? And as the people of Haggai's day take a step of obedience, recognizing that God is speaking, showing the respect, the fear due unto his name, suddenly God sends this reassuring word, I am with you. The, fear, the, the threats around you aren't going to disappear overnight, but I'm with you. The neighbors are going to hate what you're doing. They're going to throw rocks at you. They're going to curse you. But I am with you. He doesn't say this before they obey. You notice that? He says it after they obey. Sometimes God expects and asks us to take that step and let him bring the presence and the results with it. I am with you. But he does provide the resources they need. Verse 14. It says, The Lord energized and encouraged Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, and the whole remnant of the people. He encouraged, he energized them. Literally, in Hebrew, it's he roused the spirit of these people, the leaders and the people. He gave them the resources, the passion they need to obey him and to get God's work done. So thankful today that God gives us his Holy Spirit. And that spirit enables us to serve one another and serve within the church. As we obey and as God assures us of his presence, then he also gives us the spiritual resources to serve his mission, his mandate, and one another in the church. And so this week, I, I prayed for our church family. God would rouse your spirit, would prompt your obedience, would assure you of his presence, 
so that we could continue the mission of Christ in Lloydminster, even in the midst of weird situations and historical circumstances. The mandate hasn't changed, and the God doesn't change. Circumstances change. Antagonism change. And there's all sorts of stuff, but this verse and, and these words remind us that, that God, you know, as we obey and as he promises of his presence, he gives us the passion and the resources to do what we need to do. It's not about, it's not about us, thankfully, because my, my resources fall short. My ambition falls short. My passion fails. The sun sets on my enthusiasm, but God's like, here is my encouragement, my enthusiasm, my energy for you in this task. That's what Paul says in Colossians, right? You know, to this end I labor, struggling and striving according to his energy, which, which works powerfully in me. He's like, yeah, working in a church is hard work. It's laborious. It's exhausting. But it's because I'm energized by God that I'm able to do what Paul says. And a lot of days you wake up and you don't want to serve. I get it. You know, it's, it's like people that bring their phones to church and don't turn them off, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it happens. We did have paramedics here a couple weeks ago, and they're like, we can't turn our phones off. I'm like, that's fine. Leave your phone on, and if you get a call, we'll pray for you, whatever. That's fine. I understand there are circumstances that require that at times. But God is speaking to us, but he energizes us in the moment. And it says, continuing there in verse 14, they came and worked on the temple of their God. The Lord who rules over all. This took place on the 24th day of the sixth month of King Darius' second year. So 23 days after the first message, there they are. Everyone's got their pickaxe and their sledgehammer and their saw, and they're just ready to go. Let's build the temple. Let's build the temple. Let's, get, let's do what God has called us to do. Let's take the flack for seeing God's purpose move forward in this place. Let's take from this rubble and build something that's substantial and significant. And they did. We'll find out as we move forward. But, but this is God, God resetting their passion. But it's just a step of obedience. It's an acknowledgement of his greatness. It's an assurance of his presence. And now here his, his, his power comes through them and gives them the energy. And they're doing it. They're doing it. They're doing it. They're following through. The emphasis here is on the people's changed attitude. But I did a disservice to you last week. I'm not going to do it this week. Because when I talk about reset and your priorities and your passion, it means nothing if you don't include the cross in that reset agenda. God does this, has this reset plan, but all that reset was small resets to the grand reset, the great reset where, where the Son of God comes and, and dies on the cross, his life offered for the lives of any who would believe in him. Life for life. He offers his life for you so that you can have his life in you. He dies on the cross, and then three days later, he rises again, and so Death is conquered once and for all. Anything associated with death, any sickness, any virus, any bacteria, any cancer, all of that dealt with on the cross. People continue to die after Christ dies, but those that believe in him have eternal life. That's why Jesus says, 
that those who believe in me will live even if they die. Well, what does he mean? That your, your life keeps going on. Why? Because you have discovered God's grand reset in Christ on the cross. This is where it happens. It's not you working harder to try to reset your agenda with God's agenda. I mean, that, that's, that's, that comes after the cross. But God invites each of us to this place where we die in Christ. We die. To fear God is to acknowledge that we are sin, sinners that are helpless and hopeless, but in Christ, God looks after our sin problem, and then we move forward after death, accepting Christ in the newness of life that Christ gives us. So this is a picture of baptism, right? When I baptize someone, or Pastor Elijah does, or Pastor Frank, I mean, we're putting you under the water. You're, you're dying. That, that, whoever you were is dead. Now you're coming up. You're the new life in Jesus Christ. You're walking forward in a new reality. It's the reset agenda. God's reset agenda now is in your life. The Holy Spirit is in your life. There you are. You're moving forward. And the reset agenda of God in the whole scriptures tie and center around the cross. And that's why we come to the communion table here as we end this service. Little pieces of bread representing the body of our Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross, who offered himself for us uh, Little cups of juice, which symbolize the blood, right? The blood was the sacrifice of the, of, the, of the substitute that was offered. Life for life. Forgiveness of sins. And, and so we remember, this is what unifies us. This is God's grand reset plan. And so we celebrate communion as just a reminder that the horror and the awful and the, the negativity and all the, the garbage of our world will one day be gone forever and ever because Christ Reset everything on the cross. It says we eat this bread and drink this cup. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why? Because that's the final aspect of reset when Jesus returns. But in the meantime, he leaves us here. Why? So we can tell other people that God is resetting things in this world. And he's doing it through Christ. And through Christ, you can have a new life, a new start, an eternal life. You may still die of cancer of multiple sclerosis, of a heart attack, of stroke, of an aneurysm of the brain. Who knows what? You're going to die of something, all of you. But when you have Christ, that means nothing. Because your death is an instant graduation into the eternal glory of God, his presence. And so having Christ, then we're not afraid. We don't walk in this constant fear of what might happen. You could turn out of this driveway, and it's a real possibility. Someone could hit you because it's a horrible intersection. But I mean, that could happen. You could not wake up tomorrow morning, but you know what? When I got Christ, that doesn't matter. I'm good. I'm assured. I have no fear. He is with me. And that's what we celebrate here. As we partake of a bread and a cup, we are, we are just eating and we're reminding Christ is with me. He's in me. My life is Christ. And so if you believe in Jesus Christ, I encourage you to come and, and participate with us as we celebrate communion. If you're here as, as a guest, as a visitor, as you know, I just, you walked in the doors and you're, I'm just checking this thing out. I don't know what's going on. You can just sit in your chair. That's fine. You don't need to participate. You don't need to, you, there's no judgment or anything like that. But this is for the people of God, the family of God. This is what unites us. This is why we're here. This is what brings us together. We are a diverse and a strange group of people, but in Christ, we are one. We're family. Brothers and sisters, because of his body, because of his blood. And so I'm going to invite the, the man uh, to come and, and to, to lead and uh, distribute communion, Pastor Elijah, Pastor Frank. There is a gluten-free option, so just to indicate to the men as you come by, 
if you'd like gluten-free or, you know, and they'll take the their special little things and they'll give you the, the rice cracker. Otherwise, there's bread and you can grab your own cup. So we'll come up the outside. There's hand sanitizer there and then you can come. They will give you the bread. You can take your cup and then sit and we'll participate at the end. But as we come to communion, I just invite you to pray with me as we prepare for this moment of communion together. Let us pray. Cleanse us, O oh Lord. Purify us in our spirits as we prepare to participate in the remembrance of the glorious King of Heaven, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you that in Him we are one. He is Lord of this church, the boss, our supreme and highest authority. We bow in humble reverence, sincere worship, and in the fear of you as we partake of communion, recognizing that a significant cost was paid so that we could have salvation, redemption, eternal life. And so prepare us now as we take communion together. Be glorified and draw us closer to you and to one another. In this moment, we pray in Jesus' name. As you're ready, I just invite you to come up to these side aisles, receive your communion, and then go back to your seats, and we'll partake together. Just hold on to it until everyone's received, and then we will have communion together in the end. And we're going to listen to a little, a little song and video and just uh, celebrate communion together. So invite. We also do have, if you don't want to come up, you're just not comfortable walking, uh, Jerry's at the back, and he's got a little bowl with a little uh, wafer and juice together in one thing that's in a pre-sealed package. If you prefer to use that, just uh, raise your hand or indicate it to Jerry, and, and he'll see you and, and bring that to you. But if you'd like to come forward now, I just invite you, when you're ready, come up the sides and receive communion together as God's family. Is there anyone that did not receive communion that would like to receive it that was missed for any reason? Please indicate. This is the most inclusionary act of the church. Where people of every background, nation, language, economic status gather together in one moment. He says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and after he gave him thanks, let us give thanks for the bread. Thank you, Lord, for this bread, which reminds us of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. You made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He is your perfect substitute for our sin. We eat this bread in remembrance and acknowledgement that our lives are reset in you because of Christ. A huge price was paid for us. Thank you for taking that, our place on the cross. We eat this bread in deep appreciation and thanksgiving and worship to you. King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. The same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me, for every time you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until Jesus returns.
Now would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for the cup which reminds us of the price that was paid for our salvation. Your life was poured out so that we can have life today. And may your life fill us this week. Empower us, energize us. Rouse our spirits, O Lord, that we may serve you, serve one another, love each other, and love those that you love. Empower us for the ministry that you would have in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces this week. As we've eaten this little piece of bread and this drank this little cup of juice, a significant reminder of just how important you are in our lives. So reset us, O oh Lord, to serve you. We surrender and submit to you now. Be glorified in us and in this church. This in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and everybody said, Amen. There is a children's ministry training that will be happening just shortly downstairs. So, those of you that have uh, RSVP to that, come on down. If you were serving but you didn't RSVP, you can still, there's enough food you can join. It's going to be a short time, but there's enough food for you and your families to come downstairs and enjoy that. So, those of you that apply, just you can head down in a few minutes and that'll be set up for you. God bless. Have a great week.